From the spacious interior of W.C. Field's left nostril, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two of Edgar Bergen's lesser-known dummies, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. I love Edgar Bergen, and I will be one of his dummies anytime. Corey who was so insightful to send us that. That was written by William T. Garve Garver III Esquire DDS of BoozeMovies.com. Boov? Booze? I could use some booze, Garve. <laughs> just happened. <laughs> oh, Corey's funny. Corey's making me laugh. Is Corey going to read our new intros when we finally run out of intros and have enough from our listeners that we can record a, uh, even more? Yes, and I'm finishing your cookies from last week. You're finishing last week's cookies? Mm-hmm. Well, are, are, tell me, are they stale? Are they no, still fresh? they're still fresh. Actually, no, here's why they're fresh. You want to know why they're fresh? Why? Because as part of the dough, mm-hmm. you use eight ounces of cream cheese. Ooh, nice. So it makes it a little softer. And by the way, I think I finally, I might have finally, although I, I shouldn't speak too soon, I might have cracked the whole uh, pie dough thing. Alton Brown has a good pie dough uh, uh, philosophy, pie mm-hmm. dough procedure. Mm-hmm. I think I like it. You know, um, I gotta drink some water. Vamp, vamp while I'm drinking. What am I supposed to talk about? I don't know. Anything. <laughs> Pido. Pido. Well, here's the thing. Now, uh, now next week we'll have Eric Altieri's cheesecake recipe made and presented to Wade in all of its presumed deliciousness. This week, we Wade. Go. This week, Wade is still eating the dregs of what I made last week. My gosh, it's really good. I'm I'm totally sold. I'm gonna hire you. You're you're gonna be my like private baker. Oh, I'm your private baker. Oh yeah, baking for money. So, Mark, is there any honestly? It, it, all the tent poles coming up this year, summertime. There, there are even if starting in April, like that that new Tom Cruise damn thing. The, Oblivion. The, the, what the whatever. You, you know, all this stuff. It's like March and April now. Summer season is beginning in the spring. Seriously, is there anything that you're really looking forward to? Where you um, look at that and you go, you know what? I'm really compelled by that. I am looking forward to Star Trek only because we have a we have a you know we have a history with Star Trek, and, yeah. and we know the director of Star Trek, and I went to junior high school with the director of Star Trek, and you know the director of Star Trek, so, um, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. I am looking forward to um, Elysium. As I am, I oh. agree. That one I'm looking forward to because of uh, Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, that's it. That's the only one. Um, what else are we looking forward to? I don't know. That might be <laughs> because because Joseph Kaczynski, who did Oblivion, by the way, he's the Tron guy. Right. Tron Legacy, I, that doesn't do anything for me. No, no. Th- I mean, here's the thing, though. That this is going to be his. Here's the thing: if he hits Oblivion out of the park, people will forget about Tron. If this one also sucks, then they've handed him two huge budgeted films, and he shanked them both, and that's going to be it for him. Yeah, no I one's going to give him, uh, 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 you know, Avengers three. You know. The only, the only, the only one of those kind of tent poly movies that I'm sort of looking forward to is Ender's Game, frankly, which is a holiday film. That's not till the end of the year, so there's nothing really in the summertime that I'm looking forward to. Well, how about Iron Man? Iron Man three? No, no, no. I don't think so either. No, why? Look, we just seriously. Can we much, just do that? We just we we Iron Man two stank, and then we just had uh, you know Avengers is basically a great big Iron Man with a lot of supporting cast. I mean, yeah, it's the Avengers, but Robert Downey Jr. Really dominates that movie. Well, that's he does. true. Oh, he dominates it, the movie. The the entire sensibility of the film is his. It's an Iron Man movie. It's yes. not a Thor movie. Well, okay. It's not Are a you Hulk movie. How about this? Here's a, okay. Here, here's a tentpole film. It's not really tentpole-y, but it's it's sort of mid-budget tentpole. You and I are both looking forward to Kick-Ass Two. Oh yeah. Awesome. Better believe it. As that's long as long as it keeps the same sensibilities. I don't don't PG thirteen this thing, please don't. Do not do not take it down a notch. I bet Just, they will. Oh, that would be awful if they did that. And you know you're looking forward to uh, Man of Steel. In, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, look, I'll be fair. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because you know, in this case, he's a hired hand, and if somebody can sort of you know corral him and his uh, his you know slow motion speed up slow motion inclinations, which is sort of the only stylistic device that he has. By the way, speaking of stylistic devices, that thing you, that you sent me on Tom Hooper, funny. Wait, what did I send you? You sent you sent me a thing. Oh, if Tom Hooper directed your movie? Yeah, yeah. All just all those still shots. If they had been in a Tom Hooper movie, it's re- just reframing them. It's really funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Although I admit, I'm looking forward to World War Z. 
Because I like the trailer. I zombies everywhere. I will. I will. It's the speak, ultimate zombie. I film. will speak more about that at a later date. As I. Oh really? A little bit. I mean, I don't. Do, do you I know something about it? I don't know anything about it. I just oh. I know someone who's in it. Um, what? You know Brad Pitt? No. No, I don't know Brad Pitt. And I'm not looking forward to Pacific Rim. I feel like Pacific Rim is that oh. whole mecca thing you know, that was popular like five years ago. Pacific Rim is going to be fun on only a certain level, which is that we know that it's it's Benicio Del Toro doing a um, – just riffing on, on a genre. We know that he's just going to have fun with it. But I don't expect anything deep. It'll be fun, but that'll oh, be it. Oh, true. Not looking forward to Lone Ranger. Oh, hell no. Not looking forward to After Earth, which is – the Will Smith thing. I'm sorry, Guillermo del Toro. What did I say? Benicio del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. I know. I was. I was. I was getting my del Toros mixed up. Hansel and, Hansel and Gretel is already the worst movie of the oh, year. Oh, speaking of, yes. we got some Hansel and Gretel action to talk about today. What really? You mean brother on sister action? Oh, let me. As long as you brought it up. As long as you brought it up. Let's on, start the. It's let's on, start it's, the it's on Blu-ray already. Let's start the show there, Mark. Not only is it on Blu-ray. Oh, wait a minute. No, hold on. These are different Hansel and Gretels. We got, <laughs> this is this is what happens when a movie called Hansel and Gretel comes out. Bronzel and Hedel. Everyone else who has any kind of a movie called Hansel and Gretel comes out with theirs. Yes. Look at this. Check this out. Now the right? one. On, yes. Now right? what? No. Tafa. Blah. Now this one. This is of course our good friends at the Asylum, who do all their mockbusters, and this is very intentionally designed. This is the Asylum release from the Brothers Grimm, Hansel and Gretel. Classic tale, horrifyingly real. This is our good friends over at the Asylum, who I've known for years. And I love their whole mockbuster concept because they are carrying on the grand tradition of Samuel Arkoff and Roger Corman. They're the only people who are doing this. They crank these things out. And uh, this will probably wind up being a whole lot better than the one that uh, is being re- the big-budget version released in theaters. Uh, anyway, it, you know, look, it's, it, it's, a, it's a total rip. Of course it is. But it's, um, it's put together... Very well for a movie that's put together incredibly quickly. It's on Blu-ray. The Blu-ray's decent. It's got a cast and crew commentary. And, uh, how do, you know, look, it, again, it's got to be better than the one that's in theaters. It just has to be. A lot less impressive is Hansel and Gretel Warriors of Witchcraft, which looks like a pilot for a CW show, doesn't it? This stars Fievel Stewart, Boo Boo Stewart, Eric Roberts, and Vanessa Angel. The only person there I've ever heard of uh, is Eric Roberts. Uh, I'd like to know what is with this Stewart family that they name their kids Fievel and Boo Boo. Are you are you serious, Fievel and Boo Boo? I, I you know what I wish my name was Fievel. Those are cartoon characters. Fievel is the mouse from American Tale, and Boo Boo is Yogi's friend. You're naming your children after uh, friends with benefits. Whatever. See, they didn't really talk about what Yogi and Boo Boo's relationship really was. Oh. Friends with benefits. I'm gonna go wash now. You know, picnic basket. That's just like oh. a, what that's that's a euphemism. Oh. Really means something else. You have just sullied my, sullied my childhood memories. Anyway, uh, these apparently these two people, Boo Boo and Fievel, uh have some kind of a profile with the kids. I guess Boo Boo Stewart is is in the Twilight movies. Not that I have any idea that, who their na- what their names are that I can tell them apart. I know there's you know a few kids there that are like. You know, dating or something in the Twilight movies, right? I, I Robert and Kristen something or other. I'm trying to avoid those. Yeah, I'm trying. Now that they're gone, I want to avoid no. thinking about them. Well, anyway, bottom line here is we got a couple Hansel and Gretel movies. If you if you want to just uh, augment your Hansel and Gretel uh, inundation, there's a couple here that you can add to the one that's in theaters so that you see everything that has nothing to do with the original Hansel and Gretel. Isn't that funny? No. It's Nothing typical. To do with any of it. It's right. sadly typical. Uh, Mark, why don't you talk about this meta, meta, meta movie that you really liked, which I have not seen? Yeah, you know, Seven Psychopaths uh, got a whole lot of love at the time, and when I saw it, I was kind of thinking to myself, uh, you know, I, it's it's got that whole like Wade says that meta, meta, meta thing where the script is about the movie, which is the name of the script, which is the movie, which cycles back on itself because the movie is the script, which is the movie that they're making and the script that they're making. And I get that, but and, – and sure, it's – you know, okay, there's one scene in this movie that is absolutely hilarious. Do Literally, I, probably the funniest seven minutes of film I saw all last year. So I need to it see it. It is so funny. I yes. need to see it. Okay. It's a scene in – and, and I, I won't tell you what it is. It's a scene in a graveyard. Okay. And it is absolutely drop-dead hilarious. Okay. But the rest of it is, is just a little bit too in love with itself as it tells the story of a – 
of a writer who's struggling to finish his new movie, which is called Seven Psychopaths. And so he's helped out by his best friend, who's an unemployed actor, played by the always priceless Sam Rockwell. And they start to get into this thing where they kidnap or the, where, where they find lost dogs and return them to their owners. Actually, they kidnap the dog and then return to the owners for the reward. And then Christopher Walken's involved. It's just it's just meta to the max. And I, I really don't like a lot of that stuff. I just feel it's way too in love with itself. But I am a big fan of Martin McDonough, who wrote the great In Bruges. I, I love Martin McDonough. I do. And he's, he's a great, great playwright. And In Bruges was wonderful. And this film almost feels like the movie that he had in his closet that he finally got the clout to make because of In Bruges. So I'm kind of curious as to what he's going to do next. But uh, Seven Psychopaths, it's a good rental. Look, it's a good rental because it's, it's unique. It's got some funny stuff in it. I'm glad Colin Farrell is kind of back because I always like Colin Farrell. It's got this hilarious seven-minute sequence in a graveyard that will just bowl you over. It's so funny. Um, but ultimately, it's just a little bit too uh, leisurely. It's a little bit too in love with itself. It's just a little bit too meta. And I just, I, I was just too, too ridiculous for me. But again, I'm kind of in the minority because people loved it. Special features include uh, not that much. Uh, you know, an interesting film that did not get a theatrical release. And it's, it, you know, it got ripped on. A lot of people who reviewed it, um, who have reviewed it already on uh, DVD and Blu-ray, uh, are really being very unkind to it. It's All Superheroes Must Die. It is a lower-budget Surprisingly good production value, actually, for for this particular film. It is a lower budget, straight to DVD, straight to video uh, superhero film with James Remar as just a delicious villain. And come on, is there anyone that plays bad better than James Remar? I've loved him All the way since back Forty Eight to, Hours. I mean, seriously, Cotton Club. He's just he is he's just a bad dude. He just plays it beautifully, and uh, he's the bad guy, and he takes the town hostage. And these superheroes have to kind of meet these challenges to uh, you know. To save the people, as it were. Uh, this is produced by, written by, and directed by Jason Trost, who I'm not familiar with, but um, it's definitely a, a total family affair because uh, Sarah Trost, who I am going to assume is his uh, his wife, is the uh, costume designer, and as it happens, uh, he's also one of the stars of the movie. So this is definitely a Jason Trost one man show. And uh, it's not a bad kind of audition movie. I mean, it's not going to be a classic superhero film. But I think, you know, anyone that looks at this and says, wow, you know, you basically willed this movie into existence, not bad. Uh, pretty decent on, um, on Blu-ray. Not a, not a classic Blu-ray. It's, it's just kind of thrown out there. Image did probably the best that they could because the movie had a limited budget. I'm going to assume that most of the sweetening happened in post. So, uh, yeah, it's respectable. Worth a, worth a rental if you're a superhero fan. Um, Hello, I Must Be Going from Oscilloscope. This is uh, director Todd Luizzo's new film. came out last year. Todd Luizzo, of course, probably better known as an actor in High Fidelity, among other movies, where he always plays that kind of uh, serio-comic sad guy. And his movies are kind of like that. They're sort of serio-comic sad movies. Uh, I, I always remember that scene in High Fidelity when he's listening to, what is it, Morrissey? And uh, Jack Black comes in and just rips him a new one because he's listening <laughs> to all that. What is this sad crap? Is that sad stuff. And he pops on, you know, uh, walking on sunshine and dances his fool head off uh, before we even knew who Jack Black really was. That was one of his first big uh, supporting roles. Anyway, uh, Hello, I Must Be Going is worth watching because, and of course, like all oscilloscope titles, comes in the... Uh, kind of recycled cardboard eco-packaging. Uh, it stars Melanie Linsky, who, is, who was always wonderful on Two and a Half Men. I always forget Melanie Linsky is a Kiwi. She's from New Zealand, you know. You mean she's an actual fruit? Exactly. She's yes, like she a is. small, I, brown I, I knew I was going to so regret even saying that. <laughs> um, no, you know, because she, she was in, uh, in Beautiful Creatures. Originally, oh, yeah. that was her big supporting breakthrough. Sure, and uh, you, you watch on enough seasons of Two and a Half Men, and you just for, you forget completely that English, uh, Amer the American accent, is not uh, part of her native English tongue. So um, you know she's from New Zealand, and she's wonderful here, uh, once again playing an American. But uh, it's a very very kind of morose part because she's a young woman who recently got divorced. And she moves back in with her parents and tries to get her life back together and winds up uh, basically having an affair with this younger guy, uh, played by Christopher Abbott. Parents are played by Blythe Danner and Joel, uh, John Rubenstein. 
And uh, it's kind of, I've seen this story a lot. You know, I've seen, there's nothing new here for me, and it has that very Sundancey feel. And uh, really the only thing you can kind of hang on to is, is Melanie Linsky, because she's really, really good. But I don't know if that's enough. Uh, Todd Luizzo, yeah, he's got chops, but he's got to stop making movies that feel like serial comic sad movies. Just, uh, that's, all, that's all he knows how to make. That's all he knows how to make. He's not making Avengers. I guess. All right, Mark, give me some Boonwell. Let's talk about uh, Boonwell, Wade. Um, Boonwell, who had a very long career. Yeah. Uh, that thing, his career lasted like decades. One of his best films, his most popular films, was called That Obscure Object of Desire. Oh, I love this movie. Now, this, I don't know how to explain this movie. It's about, it's, it, no, it's, it's, a, it's a romance between this middle-aged, wealthy French guy you can't and a explain, young you dancer. You can't explain Boonwell to anybody. You really can't. You just have to accept that Boonwell's movies, because he was a surrealist, you have to accept that whatever story they appear to have, they it's really secondary just sort of taking you on a an existential kind of trip you're on a you're on a little trip no this this got some oscar nominations you know too. what actually got uh, i think it got actually no it got best foreign film nomination by the globes i think too and it definitely the oscars yeah. uh but it, it also got it also nominated for a bunch of other oscars including uh i think best screenplay actually i think it was best adapted screenplay yeah uh but it's good stuff it's um i don't know if you are not familiar with Boonwell, do you want to start here well, this is a blu-ray Yes. You know what? You can start anywhere. I mean, it's all the same. There, there are some Boonwells that are out from Criterion, which might be a better place to start. But uh, this is, you know, this is, it's great to have this on Blu-ray because Boonwell's films are just gorgeous looking. They are. So basically what we're doing is we are talking about Boonwell without actually talking about this movie because we don't know really know how to explain it. Yeah, it is what it is. That's true. But, uh, you know, The Golden Age is a great one. Uh, Exterminating Angel. Actually, Exterminating Angels might be my favorite of his films. Um I don't know. It's been well. It's, it's just crazy stuff. Can, can you say it's crazy stuff? It's crazy stuff. It is really crazy stuff. Yeah. But the Blu-ray looks great, although the movie's you know, obviously a little bit older, but uh, the Blu-ray still looks really good. And uh, it's from 1977, so there you go. Uh, special features include uh, a portrait of Luis Bunuel, which is uh, a good starter if you don't know who he is, and uh, a couple of interviews uh, with various people involved in the film. So that obscure object of desire is is impossible to explain but essential viewing it is it is cool and carol bouquet you know uh we you know she my, smells good she's awesome no carol bouquet from you know for your eyes only she's Bou- wonderful yeah bouquet yeah she smells good bouquet you know, we gotta we gotta miss tr- that totally miss that I, I got it just damn you from 19 <laughs> from 1964 we have a really terrific dvd release i wish this were on uh, blu-ray i really really do it's a very important significant film um, it is uh, the the in- remarkable adaptation of John Howard Griffin's memoir called Black Like Me. The movie dates a little bit, obviously, because it it forces you to make some to suspend your disbelief in ways that you know are, are, are it almost makes it look a little bit silly. Because the idea is that James Whitmore is a white guy who disguises himself, puts on makeup, and pretends to be a black man. And uh, goes through the South to see what, you know, he basically wants to get inside the experience of a black man during the Civil Rights era. And this is uh, right around the time the Civil Rights Act was being passed in 1964. And uh, the, the memoir was written in 1959. So it's, it, between the book and the movie, it's really rooted right in that very, very uh, incendiary and seminal period. And it's a really, really good film. Uh, you got a lot of extraordinary supporting uh, performances in here from major actors, Will Gear, uh, Roscoe Lee Brown, Clifton James, who were all very much a- activists at the time. So they, they lent their, uh, their credibility to the film, and it benefits as a result. Um, but I wish it were on Blu-ray because it's such a well-shot film. It's such beautiful black and white. But that being said, the fact that the film is out is really significant. Uh, it doesn't get enough credit. It's... it's um, it really is one of the uh, one of only a handful of films that were made during the civil rights era, and frankly, um, Corman's uh, film with William Shatner, The Intruder, The Intruder, is is one of those. That's true. That's and a great film. They are one very, of Corman's best. Absolutely, and there are very few films from the era that were made about the era, and this is one of them. So it is really historically significant. It's very important that it's out. It's a two disc set, and James Whitmore has never been better. But again, you know, given what we expect of makeup and suspension of disbelief today. It's it you, you you do have to sort of 
take a step into 1960s era low budget movie land in order to really kind of get with this. It, the, you, you, if you start going, why does everybody look at James Whitmore like he like he's black? It's obvious he's James Whitmore. You got to sort of step away from that. So that being said, it is a, a really, really worthwhile movie. Or what you could do is you can watch that and then watch the old Saturday Night Live skit where Eddie Murphy dresses as a white guy. Oh, yeah. He tries to pass as a white guy. Fantas- oh, or he, he lives as uh, Jerry Lewis and Frank Sinatra and numerous others. Yeah. We also have a couple from Twilight Time. We love Twilight Time. Twilight Time, like Olive Films, and we've got some other Olive Films coming up as well. Twilight Time uh, licenses and releases a lot of studio stuff from their libraries that they just otherwise wouldn't do. And you can only get these from ScreenArchives.com. They are, there are limited numbers of them. There are only a few thousand of these each. So if you miss out on these, you're going to have to pray that somebody, uh, that a used one shows up at your, your local uh, used record store or something because uh, there are limited pressings. Uh, one of them is uh, the very, very cool Experiment in Terror, uh, which is a Blake Edwards film, believe it or not, from 1962. Uh, Blake Edwards didn't just do uh, comedies and, and light fare. He actually did, at a certain point, do some movies like Days of Wine and Roses and stuff that had uh, some real bite to it before he uh, kind of went out on his own. Uh, what I love about this is it's got a great performance from Lee Remick and a, a terrific performance from Ross Martin, my good old friend Ross Martin, who, uh, who was on Wild, the Wild, Wild West. West. Yes! Uh, Ross Martin is is a is just a he's so evil, and uh, he's stalking poor Lee Remick, who just plays the uh, the stalked girl so beautifully. Stephanie Powers is in here, a young Stephanie Powers, long before she was uh, helping Steve Austin uh, better understand the needs of the alien race that built Bigfoot. You know that, right? I have no idea what you just you said. Have no idea what I just said. Okay, never Something mind. about Bigfoot, Steve Austin, Six Men Dollar Man, Man Stephanie, Stephanie Powers. Yeah, never lame. mind. Lame. I could have made a heart-to-heart reference, but I don't really that want to. sucked. Well, the thing heart-to-heart? is, I can't go to a heart-to-heart-to-heart-to-heart-to-heart reference because Robert Wagner is uh, apparently under investigation again. With for, the whole, for, killing Mad- for killing Natalie Wood? That story won't go away. And because it's just, supposedly, you know, she before she hit the water, she was beaten up. I know. Oh, God. Is that, is that Wagner still around? Christopher Walken still around? Somebody knows what, Somebody knows what happened. I know. And somebody... Well, you know, the latest thing is that Robert Wagner won't talk to the police again. That's everyone right. Else, everyone else has given their new interviews. He's like, I'm done. Somebody, mm. even, even, the, even the captain of the boat, is, isn't he still around? Yeah. They're all still around. You have no idea how devastated I was when that happened. I mean, Natalie Wood was like it to me. She was everything. And I collected all the newspaper clippings and the entire papers, and I stacked it in my closet, and it became silverfish food, and it was just... I was so depressed. And now I'm depressed all over again. And that has nothing to do with Experiment in Terror, which features, among other things, a terrific, awesome, unbelievably great Henry Mancini score, which is available here as an isolated score track, as they are in all of these Twilight Time titles. That's Experiment in Terror, just a terrific movie. Uh, also, one of my favorite of the, uh, the Bond spin-off movies. You know, everybody had to do a Bondish film Back in the 50s and 60s, once the, uh, the whole Bond thing took off, then, you know, you had things like Matt Helm with uh, Dean Martin and, of course, Our Man Flint. Yeah. Now, James, good. James Coburn just rules because he made Flint it's his own thing. It's, it, it, when you look at it now, it doesn't even feel like a, like a Bond spinoff but it's, uh, or a Bond spoof, but it really, that's what it is. Um, but it's its own thing. It's so good that it just it stands apart. You don't ha- actually have to have any kind of James Bond um, familiarity to really appreciate it. It's an awful lot of fun. It's a really, really good movie. And uh, it's probably Coburn's most famous role now, wouldn't you say? Oh, totally. It's amazing. He's awesome. I mean, he's Flint. He's our man Flint. It's on Blu-ray. And uh, some uh, unusually rich extras here for a Twilight Time title. Um, it's got, obviously, the isolated score track, which is is quite good. Um, and uh, then you got an audio commentary with film historians Lee Pfeiffer and Eddie Friedfeld. Um, a, a little featurette on uh, Daniel Mann, the director, and uh, a few other little featurettes. Uh, one is is Flint versus Kale, which gets into Pauline Kale's uh, feelings about the movie, which I thought was really terrific. And uh, some storyboard sequences, the original trailer, and screen tests. It's uh, it is a really really fun Blu-ray. I would recommend this for anyone who wants to see a really really cool, just groovy, funky '60s spy film. You know I love the OSS 117 movies. This is right up there, except this was made in the day. That's true. Yeah. So. And they made a sequel. Yeah, they did. Well, there's In Like Flint. Yeah. There's Our Man Flint. Yeah. There's uh This is still the best, though. That's it still is. the best one. It's still the best one. Yep. 
Uh, Wade, let's go back to 1932 and talk about uh, White Zombie. Now, Bela Lugosi, who is mostly, of course, known as playing uh, Dracula yeah. in uh, Todd Browning's film, uh, stars here as White Zombie. Now, he, he, he's not the actual White Zombie, but um, the thing with Lugosi is that he was always kind of typecast because, A, he did all those horror, you know, universal horror films, but also because he had this really thick Hungarian accent that kind of kept him from doing different types of roles. So White Zombie was kind of his attempt to, you know, uh, do something a little bit different. It really was kind of a low-budget movie directed by Victor Halperin. It didn't really do very well, and I don't know if it really ages that well. It's really more uh, a movie of its time and a movie for Bela Lugosi historians, of which there are a couple out there who want to kind of see how his career uh, developed. Uh, the movie's about a woman who uh, who comes under like a curse and becomes a zombie. The white zombie. Awesome. May I say. Awesome. There's some and good there's interviews. Nothing, ra- nothing racial about that. No, that yeah. is true. Now, the great, uh, you know, Kino always comes up with good extras for their stuff. Now, here we have a six-minute interview with Bela Lugosi nice. from 1932. Nice. And an audio commentary from uh, film historian Frank Thompson, which, of course, is very good. It feels like he's reading off prepared notes, but still, there's a lot of good information there. Um, so this is good stuff. It's good stuff if you like, you know, back in the day, it was Bela Lugosi versus Lon Chaney. They were the two big... Uh, you know, monster movie actors. Now, Lon Chaney died very young, but uh, Bela Lugosi stuck around for a while. In fact, most people, uh, younger than us, will know of Bela Lugosi because he was portrayed by Martin Landau in Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Yes. So people might know Bela Lugosi from that, but Bela Lugosi really was A a, a big deal back in the 30s. Yeah. So that's White Zombie. It's on Blu-ray and uh, DVD. Not much difference because, you know, the movie's so old. Well, we're going to stay in the 30s, Mark, and we're going to talk about the Boris Karloff triple feature from the Warner Archive collection. You can get uh, more of this at warnerarchive.com. Uh, Boris Karloff was not just a monster guy. He was really a very a very efficient and effective um, character actor for Warner Brothers back in the 30s. And this is three of his more unknown films. Uh, they're all kind of lesser movies. I- interesting for uh, Boris Karloff fans. If you really want to kind of immerse yourself in his career, this is a good way to go. Uh, but otherwise, don't expect greatness here. Don't expect to watch these and, and think, my gosh, why didn't that win Best Picture? There's nothing like that here. This is just more for Karloff fans. Uh, three films from the late 1930s, uh, West of Shanghai, The Invisible Menace, and Devil's Island. Um, all of them are very much of the era. They're all very kind of uh, genre-y adventure thriller movies uh, with a little bit of a political spin at the time. You know, this was during a very tense part of the of, of history of the 20th century in the late 30s. Hitler was in power. The Japanese had invaded China. You know, the, the tensions that would eventually erupt into World War II were very, very much already on the horizon. Everyone sort of knew what was coming. They were just sort of waiting for the wave to crash. So you feel that kind of tension in all of these. They're capitalizing on what was in the zeitgeist. Uh, West of Shanghai might be the best one here. Karloff plays a, uh, a warlord who's uh, holding hostage a bunch of Americans in a, in a Chinese mission. Um, you got a little bit of a spy thing going on with Karloff as a uh, as an ex-con in uh, The Invisible Menace, and then he plays a doctor uh, in Devil's Island, uh, who uh, you know is has been wrongly accused of uh, doing some rather nasty things. It's he's he's a very very efficient workmanlike actor, and you really see his range here, even if the movies are much more appreciated in context uh, of the time. And and Karloff and Lugosi, they would they were sort of the two. Yeah, they were. They were the two guys who did all those sorts of roles, and they were they had an interesting relationship. I think that they were they were rivals for a while, then they got then they were friends for a while, and yep. uh, it, it's true. I mean, they they both did the same sorts of roles. I know that Carloff uh, um, did a lot of those sorts of roles, and I know that uh, uh, there was some mistrust there. I think that Carloff, I think that Lugosi thought that Carloff was like upstaging him when they would do movies together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because they were competing for the same roles, even though they oftentimes appear together in movies. Very true. So there was sort of like a bit of a rivalry there, but uh, it's interesting stuff. We also have a couple of uh, classic educational short series installments from from the Kino Classics line. Uh, these have been around for a number of years, and uh, they are just always thoroughly entertaining. This is volume five and six of these sets that feature just all of those wacky shorts that a lot of us grew up with. They were all made in the uh, in the 50s and 60s and some in the in the 40s. Uh, I think late 40s is when they started making these things after World War II, mostly kind of red scare stuff, duck and cover, the Russians are coming, hygiene films, you know, don't don't get venereal disease. 
and they're so goofy, and they're so kind of corny and academic, and they are such great party things to watch now. You throw this onto your uh, your 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 home theater system when you have people over for a dinner party, and they're just going to be howling. I mean, it's really really fun stuff, and you don't have to pay attention to like a you know a, a short film or a movie. It's all just it's goofy no matter when you look at it. Uh, volume five is Rules for School, and Volume six is Troubled Teens, and they break these down obviously according to themes. Uh, Rules for School, believe it or not, actually I think is is maybe the funnier one, even though Troubled Teens is is the campier one. Um, rules for school just kills me. Like, when should grown-ups stop fights? Uh, maintaining classroom discipline. Rescue man. Making the most of school. School spirit and sportsmanship. I gotta tell you, school spirit and sportsmanship is just an, a, a complete riot because it's, it's, it's so obsolete now. These things are awesome. And d- you know what, what's awesome are not, not only these sorts of keynote releases like Rules for School, hmm. but also when uh, Mystery Science Theater makes fun of them. Oh, it's, just, it's always fun to watch. Storytelling. Can you tell it in order? What? Seriously? School rules and how they help us. How quiet helps at school. Uh, Troubled Teens. Some great titles here. They tell you everything. Uh, Mark, tell, tell me that you aren't dying to see condoms, a responsible option. And that's a recent one. That's from 1985. Really? Yeah, that's like, you know, I mean, that's almost 30 years ago, but that's not like the 50s and 60s. Uh, then we got one here from 1972. Talking to your teenager about VD. Awesome. Uh, from 1970, from Kansas State University, A Case for Beer. Did they even think about that? A mm-hmm. Case for Beer? It's a pun. Silly people. Uh, when I'm old enough, goodbye. So touching. Uh, LA Board of Supervisors from 1983, The Gang. I mean, that's another recent one. It's crazy. Um, and my favorite here is the very first one. It's called As Boys Grow. Aww. I dare you, I dare you not to just absolutely keel over, double over, and cry with laughter so hard while you're watching As Boys Grow. It, uh, a lot of this is just all dead serious, but it's so funny. Wait, uh, less funny is uh, the Blu-ray premiere of Titanic. No, not that Titanic. This is the uh, <laughs> Titanic starring uh, Clifton Webb, Barbara Stanwyck. Mm. From 1953, this thing was uh, co-written by Charles Brackett, who wrote uh, like at least like ten Billy Wilder films. So Charles Brackett is like a hardcore. That guy's like hardcore. He is a great writer, and this film is actually an Oscar winner. It's uh, one Oscar, I think, for writing for screenplay or something like that. Um, so it's a good movie. I mean, it's not as historically accurate, let's say, as the Cameron Titanic. It's not as grand and special effects laden as the. Cameron Titanic this one really although the one thing that this one and the Cameron Titanic they they do have in common is the fact that uh, the movie starts with a very personal story it's about husband and wife and they're kind of they're having a little bit of problems with their marriage and there you see the experience of the sinking of the Titanic through this estranged couple that they're and who are having problems with their relationship so um, it's good stuff 20th Century Fox did a good job with the DVD there's a commentary by Richard Schickel by the way Richard Schickel did you see Richard Schickel at our awards? Oh, I, I was not at the awards. Oh, that's right, you weren't at the awards. No, I, I watched a lot of it streaming. So Richard Schickel, who yes. is the long, 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 long time film critic for Time Magazine, one of the great film critics yes. of, of modern times. Grumble, grumble, grumble. He looks terrible. He's lost a lot of weight. He's lost a lot of weight. He's hunched over. He looks really old. He's walking really slow. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, Richard. Yeah, well, he I, hasn't, you know, he's a lifelong smoker, too. I mean, he's not He's not in great shape. I know. He sure, sure didn't look like it at, at, no, at our dinner. No. Anyway, some great special features, including a commentary by Schickel, which, of course, is always good. Um, commentary by some, uh, actually, there's a commentary by Robert Wagner and Audrey Dalton. Audrey Dalton appears in the film, and along with an historian, so that's good. Um, there's some Fox Movie Tone News stuff that I always love. But the film itself is good. It's a, it's good stuff. Look, the the Titanic sinking stuff looks like, uh, you know, it looks like it was done in a big gigantic pool which it was but that being said it's a good movie I, I, in fact i would cons- i i think that a night to remember I, I i might prefer this over a night to remember interesting yeah even though night to remember is, I mean, look, is another oscar i mean did, stanwick did, did, stanwick didn't night to remember win, win best picture no no oh heavens no no what did that win that won something it won like effects or something like that or but people you know. people tend to when when they think of of the titanic they tend to think of Cameron's Titanic and A Night to Remember. They True. don't think of this one. No. But I think people should. Yeah, they should. it is a good movie. It is a good movie. Thank you.
Uh, Shout Factory has done us a wonderful gift. Uh, they have come out with a movie that I honestly never thought would come out in a, any kind of special edition on Blu-ray. I thought this would just kind of, uh, you know, eventually show up negligibly and be forgotten. Uh, but Universal has allowed Shout Factory to do what, uh, you know, companies like Twilight Time and Olive do, which is give a real sheen to a movie that they themselves were not going to uh, even give a second thought to. And so we now have the special edition Blu-ray and DVD set of The 7% Solution. Yeah. Now, I am not the fan of Nicholas Meyer that Mark is. Mark obviously loves Wrath of Khan and everything that comes out of uh, Nicholas's no, Meyer, no, Nicholas Meyer's pie hole, you know, he thinks is, uh, is, is, is well, that's canon. But this is a good movie. It Come is on, a good it's movie. It's a delightful this is, film. This is Nicholas Meyer at his best. And, you know, there were a lot of these kind of... Um, uh, what how how would we put it? These uh, sort of reinvention of Sherlock Holmes or these continuation of Sherlock Holmes movies at, uh, around about this time. You had like Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, and uh, what was the Billy Wilder one? Oh, it was uh, Young, Sherl- no, young, young Sherlock? Not, not Young no, Sherlock it was, Holmes. Um, it, was, uh, it was it was like it was like one of his last films. Yeah, it was one of the, if not the last. It was. Uh, Hang on, no, keep talking. I'll, I'll, I'll remember uh, the Billy Wilder film. Anyway, so Seven Percent Solution is is really really cool because it wraps Sigmund Freud into Sherlock Holmes and vice versa, and uh, you get this really kind of cool historical fictional fusion the Private movie. Life of Sherlock Holmes. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. You get this cool fic- uh, you know, historical fictional fusion film, which is just so nicely put together, and it's well-written, and uh, you know, Nicholas Meyer, who is basically known as a director, you know, Rathacon and all that stuff, I mean, he, this is his book. He wrote this as a book first and then adapted his own book into a movie, so this is essentially when he, he went from being you know, a writer to a filmmaker. And he did a great job of it. I mean, it's wonderful. Really nicely done. Terrific cast. Incredible cast featuring uh, Nickel Williamson, who would later play Merlin in uh, Excalibur, is fantastic as Holmes. And then you've got, you know, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, who is just absolutely delightful. Um, Alan Arkin plays Sigmund Freud. Uh, Robert Duvall plays um, uh, uh, Watson. And it's just a lot of fun. And then in addition to that, you think, oh, this movie couldn't possibly get better. And then Laurence Olivier shows up and Joel Grey shows up and Samantha Egger, who some of us still remember, shows up. And it's just it's a really fun movie with a great score, by the way, from John Addison. Uh, not much by way of special features, just an interview with Nicholas Meyer. But it is a it is a really good transfer. Shout did a great job of it. And uh, you get the Blu-ray and the DVD. First rate. Love it. Seven percent solution. Yep, I agree. Good stuff. I love that movie. Uh, no way, we've got to talk about two from Woody Allen. Finally, do it. more Woody Allen Blu-rays, damn it. Get them uh, out there. Now, the thing with Woody Allen Blu-rays is that you've got to understand uh, there will never be special features on any of these. Woody will never do an audio no, commentary. No, he's just not Couldn't care less. Woody doesn't even know how to put a DVD player in the DVD player. Uh, Woody, or to put a DVD in the DVD player. Woody, he doesn't know how. Woody probably doesn't even know that these exist other than the fact that he gets a check you know, with, with maybe a little yeah. bit of bumping money in it because uh, he gets the D- Blu-ray residuals. As long as he makes one movie a year and keeps making a movie a year for as long as I'm alive, uh, I'm okay. Exactly. Which means he's going to have to hang around until he's about 130. But that's, you know, hey, get it done, Woody. Exactly. Uh, first, we have Sleeper. And uh, Sleeper was part of Woody's, uh, oh, let's call it the early funny one years. <laughs> and of the, uh, this is 1973, and of the early funny one years, this one is to me, is probably the least uh, consistently funny. Oh, I think Sleeper's hysterical. But it's hysterical. Oh, it's it is so hysterical. funny. I mean, I love Take the Money and Run is probably my... And love me, and Death. To love Take the Money and Run and Love and Death are the ones that, to me, are consistently top to bottom. Every 30 seconds, another great laugh. This one starts out great and, and, and becomes really good. When he emerges from sleep and he's in that kind of weird, goofy, drunk state in the wheelchair rolling around... And they're trying to talk, and he's going into the background and off camera and coming back around. I mean that that is one of the, the one of the most hysterically funny moments in any movie ever made, and it, the way it's directed is genius. I, I for anyone who wants to see how you execute comedy from the standpoint of a director, just watch that scene. It is genius, absolute genius. Oh, it's too damn funny. Anyway, uh, Woody Allen plays a uh, this uh, you know a contemporary nerd who goes into uh, you know cryogenic freeze and he comes out uh, in, in a future world where he has to fight the government dun, and dun, it's, dun. it's with uh, Diane Keaton also his uh, his longtime muse and girlfriend and mm-hmm. everything anyway sleeper's just hilarious it's just so, so much great stuff now here's the thing on the top here I'm noticing it says the Woody Allen collection mm-hmm 
wait up top here. Yeah, that which, means that which means makes me wonder. More will be coming. Which yes, yes. Which makes me wonder. Well, it's all this all the stuff that was boxed by uh, MGM back in the day. They're now going to release them one at a time on Blu-ray. So that means yes, they're all finally going to be coming out. All of those that you have in your in your you know Woody Allen collection box sets from MGM DVD ten years ago. I wish they would just come out with a whole Blu-ray box set of Woody they need Allen to. stuff. And they probably will when Christmas time rolls around. But there's like 45 Woody Allen films. Well, the ones that are in the MGM collection, they came out with three. I mean, I th- if I recall, it was three different box sets. Vamp. Mm. I'll, I'll look it up. Okay. Uh, the other one that's coming out is uh, or is out is uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. Hannah and Her Sisters from uh, 1986. This is the Oscar-winning uh, drama. There were 11 that were released originally well, in those box sets. To re- they need to come out with those 11 in one big box set so I can yeah. buy it. Hannah and Her Sisters and, uh, and Sleeper, obviously, we just mentioned, but there's also uh, you know Alice, Another Woman, Crimes and Misdemeanors, September, Shadows and Fog, Zelig, Radio Days, Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, I mean, they're all, Purple they're, Rose of Cairo. They're all great, except for... Broadway maybe, Danny Rose. Except for maybe Midnight Summer Sex Comedy. That's not, not my favorite, but the rest are great. Anyway, um, Hannah and Her Sisters is Woody at his best. Um, the writing here is great. Uh, this is him in sort of that, not serial comic mode. I mean, there's some there's some funny, not funny stuff in it, but there's some cute, clever stuff in it. But mainly, it's just about, as Woody said when he was trying to justify the Sunni uh, uh, debacle. He said, "The heart wants what it wants." And in Hannah and her sisters, you've got three sisters and a couple of guys, mm-hmm. and they sort of uh, they sort of mix and match relationships, going from one to the other. Michael Caine won an Oscar for it. Uh, Woody Allen's in it. Mia Farrow's in it. Barbara Hershey, Diane Weist, uh, Max von Sydow's in it. Carrie Fisher, and uh, it's just great. I mean, it's just got this amazing sense of purpose, and it's just got a, it's a great script. It's very assured. It's just it's just brimming it is, with just it is good one of feeling his, and love. It's, it's great. one of his very best films. It is a it is a magical movie. Yep, it, it really is a really, really is. magical movie. Ah, uh, Hannah and her sisters. So good. Go buy it. Buy it right now. Uh, we got a bunch of John Wayne stuff here, and all of his, I, I don't know what deal with the devil they signed, but all of his releasing J- John Wayne films by the bucketful every month now, and uh, this is an interesting set of them, because you look at them and you go, all right, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, and so I'm going to go through the, uh, the yeah, 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 before I get to the ah. Oh. Uh, first, we've got a George Sherman-directed film called Frontier Horizon. This is another one of those three Musketeers movies with Musketeers spelled like mesquite, right? We uh, talked about a few of those uh, some weeks ago, M-E-S-Q-U-I-T-E-E-R-S. John Wayne, Ray Corrigan, and Raymond Hatton uh, basically just doing that thing, that, that kind of generic uh, Western three amigos thing, except not funny. Uh, and these were all B-Westerns from the, uh, the 30s and 40s. It just, you know, whatever. Uh, we got one that is sort of nominally part of that, King of the Pecos, directed by Joseph Kane. And uh, this is another very workmanlike uh, John Wayne Western from the 30s. Not that spectacular. It sort of does all the stuff that his movies were doing at the time. Really a generic programmer. Uh, both of those on Blu-ray, as is The New Frontier, directed by Carl Pearson, which is yet another one of those kind of workmanlike movies where Wayne is sort of forming his persona. Uh, this is, I think, a little better the, than the others. He's a, he's a sheriff who's trying to clean up the town. We've seen that a trillion times before. But, the, you know, you do get the sense here, uh, this is 1935, that he's... Maybe a little bit more assured with Pearson directing him. Uh, maybe likes the role a little bit better. But you know what? Then you get to the crown jewel. Thank you, Olive, for the 1952 Blu-ray release of The Quiet Man. The wonderful John Ford film with John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, and Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, that is sort of like John Ford's uh, love letter to, his, to the land of his ancestors, to Ireland. And uh, there, I know a lot of people don't like this film. Uh, Ray Green, example, for example, our good friend Ray Green, who uh, is uh, 100% pure American Irish, uh, really is not fond of this movie, is not fond of how it sort of depicts the Irish. I'm part Irish, too. I'm 25% Irish. My grandmother was Irish. Um, and I love it. So uh, I'm entitled to say I, I like this movie a lot. I think it's wonderful. I always watch it, and I always think of... The, the scene that they depict here with um, John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara that they have on the cover of the DVD, of the cover of the Blu-ray, Mark, what other movie pays tribute to this and that scene? Uh, was it directed by Ron Howard? No. Was it directed by Steven Spielberg? Yes. Um, is it um, Minority Report? No. 
Is it um, that's Lincoln? Fu- no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that scene in Lincoln when he's watching a John Ford movie and he's thinking, <laughs> damn, that guy really made good westerns. No, uh, it's E.T. If you remember in E.T. when uh, they let the frogs loose in the classroom, it's intercut oh, yeah. with E.T. watching The Quiet Man. That's when they're starting to connect. Oh, and remember, yeah. he restages the scene with What's-Her-Face who wound up on Baywatch. Oh, that's right. Erica Alenyak, little Erica Alenyak. Right. Yeah. I, I did not put those together. Yes. I did not. Quiet Man is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, gosh, you just don't miss it. It really is fantastic. John Wayne playing you know, the boxer who uh, gives up fighting after he kills a guy and uh, goes back to the Irish town where he came from. And it's just, it just gets wonderful and romantic and pastoral, and it's absolutely fantastic. One of John Ford's very best. It's really just heartfelt, and I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, this was, by the way, co-produced by Marion C. Cooper. Who, of course, is uh, one of the one of the great uh, King Kong King Kong guys? Yeah. So that, despite all of these kind of uh, otherwise negligible John Wayne movies that are strictly for fans, The Quiet Man is a triumph. Bravo, Olive Films. Good call. Wade, uh, there's an interesting film that I can recommend as a rental. Martin Campbell, who I think is one of the better uh, kind of rent and action directors, he's a he's a rent and action director. He's but really I like good him. though. He's done a but number I like of, him. He's done some of the better Bond films yep. and he did No Escape, which I love. That was his big action breakthrough. Did you ever see No Escape yeah, with, with Ray, Ray Liotta? Liotta, right? That is a damn fine film. <laughs> you know why it's such a great film? Because it starts off. I love movies that do something really stylish and effective at the very very beginning. The credit sequence takes place over this shot, this like extreme canted overhead shot where a guy is like reviewing troops and one of the troops kills him, just walks right up and just blows his head away. And it's done in such a matter-of-fact way. You sit there as an audience and you just go, what just happened? And then you don't need that exposition for the rest of the movie. Now you understand. Ray Liotta, he shot some dude he shouldn't have and he's now on this prison island. And uh, is he guilty? Did he do it out of conscience? Is he a bad dude? Now you can explore all those existential questions without having to waste a lot of time on some kind of trumped-up exposition. Really smart filmmaking. All right, so basically... So Wade, that being said, I just uh, there's nothing to do with this fine. movie. So Wade and I are on board with Martin Campbell. Now Martin Campbell... Um, He's been around for longer than we think. He made his film debut in 1974. I know. He was around a long time. In a movie called The Sex Thief. Now, The Sex Thief is basically just a low-budget sex romp kind of a movie. But you know what? It's really kind of interesting. um, It stars – it's really a nobody cast. But it's about this uh, jewel thief who wears a mask, and he busts into homes of married couples while the husband's gone. Uh, And then he not only steals the jewels, but he has sex with the woman who's in, in the house. And it's part of this kind of UK 70s kind of sex romp thing that they went through back then. And uh, But this one is a little better than the rest, mostly because Martin Campbell is stylish no matter what the budget. The guy's got a sense of energy and fun, and he's creative. And even though I'm not going to say this is a great film, it's kind of an interesting film. I would definitely check out The Sex Thief. It's good for a uh, rental is what I would do. On the sex thief, mm. good stuff, interesting stuff, good deal. And you know what? You should watch this, and then when you're done with it, you can look at it and say, even this low budget '70s sex romp is better than Green Lantern. <laughs> nice. A uh, bunch of olive films. Which, by the way, was a Martin Campbell film, and a terrible one at that. Oh, that's right. Oh my gosh, I'd totally forgotten that. Terrible. I didn't even get your reference for a second. Terrible. Oh. Poor Martin Campbell. His career deserves better. Uh, we have a whole slew of olive films. Well, not a whole slew. We've got four. Uh, four more olive uh, titles to talk about real quickly. Uh, one is Stanley Donnan's Terrific Indiscreet with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. This has been out on uh, public domain titles a number of times. It is. It, it just never looks right. And we finally get uh, from Paramount's library an olive release on Blu-ray, the way that it was meant to be. And uh, this is absolutely terrific. This basically puts together uh, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman again after Notorious, which Alfred Hitchcock made, and this time under the direction of Stanley Donnan, who would eventually go to make, go on to make a very Hitchcockian film with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in Charade. Um, and this is not a Hitchcockian film, but it is uh, it is a wonderful melodrama, very opulent, beautifully photographed, and a really great showcase for the uh, for the two. Uh, for the two actors, and one of the really better um, 
color 35 millimeter photography efforts by Freddie Young, who was more famously known for all the stuff he did for David Lean, Dr. Zhivago, and Ryan's Daughter, and Lawrence of Arabia. So, a uh, really fun movie. Indiscreet, uh, just a terrific classic that uh, is finally done right on Blu ray. And then uh, It's in the Bag which is a Jack H. Skirball production. And if you don't know Jack H. Skirball, uh, there's actually a place in Los Angeles named for him, which is the Skirball Center. And a lot of people don't know that. So uh, Skirball was not just a, uh, a producer, but he was also very much a, uh, a philanthropist and a real, you know, really civic-minded guy. This is, uh, that being said, not a, not a great movie. It just has a lot of kind of uh, fun supporting appearances. Um, Jack Benny, Don Amici, William Bendix, uh, they're all the, Rudy Valley, they're all of the, uh, they're all the ones that sort of show up to give this film a little bit of, uh, a little bit of star panache. But in 1945, you know, these kinds of movies were pretty much uh, just cranked out to give people something to escape from, either at the, the end of the war or at the beginning of peacetime. And so naturally they turn to something that's very, very tried and true, which is the 1928 Russian novel, The Twelve Chairs. Now, uh, you probably know The Twelve Chairs mainly because of the Mel Brooks film. It was Mel Brooks's directing debut. He did his own adaptation of The Twelve Chairs, which is kindly, kind of considered the definitive version, even though it's much more Mel Brooks. It's actually been done like a dozen times. The, the, the Twelve Chairs has been done way, way, way too many times. And uh, this one's okay. It's not as good as, as Mel Brooks's, but it's fine. Um, Fred Allen and John Carradine are, are, are fun and... Uh, but it's still, you know, the, the, it, it really the only reason that this was made and the only reason you're watching it is for the cavalcade of, uh, you know, name stars who just kind of walk in and say, hi, howdy. Uh, Jack Benny basically being the one who steals the movie. Uh, then we have some more recent films from Olive. Uh, the most noteworthy, I would say, is probably Trust. Uh, I love Hal Hartley. Hal Hartley is one of those really, really iconoclastic uh, independent directors who just makes the, the coolest movie. You know, Hal Hartley never uses anything other than a 50-millimeter lens in his movies. That's it. That's because... He, he never changes lenses. terrible director. He, he's just, he wants everything to look exactly like the eyeball sees it. You know, our eyes roughly correspond to a 50-millimeter lens, a 35-millimeter, 50-millimeter lens. And so he shoots all of his movies with a 50-millimeter lens. Maybe he never, should not never... do that anymore. <laughs> anyway, I love his movies. They're so weird and quirky and odd and restrained. And this one is from 1990. is one of his first films. And uh, it is... It is still fun, but it is very melancholic because uh, Adrian Shelley is uh, is the star, and Adrian Shelley uh, it was such a promising actress and filmmaker, and her death a few years ago was just devastating, and uh, it makes it a little tough to watch. But it also features a young Edie Falco and Martin Donovan, who's constantly in Hal Hartley movies. Um, and you know what? It's a really, really good film. It's it's good in ways now that I don't think I realized then. I can't laugh at it or enjoy the quirks of it the same way. But um, with Adrian Shelley being gone, it somehow takes on a an added dimension of poignancy. And uh, I think it's really good. It's on Blu-ray. And then also Cujo is uh, now on Blu-ray. All have snatched that one up from Paramount. I think this is strictly one to make money. This is, of course, based on the uh, Stephen King novel about the rabid dog. Uh, it's a terrible movie. Uh, Louis Teague, who you know made a few of these cheesy movies back then, including Alligator, uh, directed it. It was a a big step down for Dee Wallace Stone from uh, from E.T. She just basically kind of sold everything out and then went to B movie hell with this movie. My recollection of of Cujo is not so much the movie. This is on Blu-ray; doesn't really need to be, but you know, it's hey, look, it's it's going to make some money for Olive. Um, Cujo. My recollection of this is when I actually went and I sat in the studio audience for. Um, uh, the uh, the Jim J. Bullock thing. Jim J. Uh, too Close for Comfort? Too Close for Comfort, thank you. And um, Jim J. in between takes, they were resetting a scene, and Jim J. Bullock is hamming it up for the... Uh, I know it's a Ted Knight series, but to me it's a Jim J. Bullock series. And Jim J. Bullock is hamming it up for the audience, and uh, he came out. And you're not supposed to really talk to the audience. You're supposed to let the warm-up guy do that. You know, there's a stand-up comic who usually warms the audience up for sitcoms. You're supposed to let him deal with the audience. Jim J. Bullock is just talking to the audience. Has anybody here seen Cujo? What a stupid movie. And then he ducks behind a little banister and sticks his head out and goes, Cujo? Funniest thing I've ever seen. I have no recollection of the movie at that point. All I could remember was Jim J. Bullock making fun of it. And then another one that uh, Olive seems to have grabbed from the Paramount Library is an early 90s film called Ticks. And 
I I didn't even see this at the time. This was directed by Tony Randall, not the actor Tony Randall, but the director Tony Randall with one L, who uh, was another one of those momentary uh, horror guys. Did a number of uh, of horror movies like uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser two, and a few others. And um, it's terrible. <laughs> it's really a stupid movie, but I guess it has a genre following. Uh, it's all about you know mutant ticks. And the interesting thing is who's in it. Because Seth Green is like a pubescent boy in this movie. I didn't even realize he's been acting that long. Did you know that? Seth Green? He's funny. He's on Family Guy. He's been around for 20 years. It's incredible. Amy Dolenz is in this thing. Uh, wow. It, you know, Clint Howard and Rance Howard are in it as well. No Ron Howard. Yeah, look at look at look here on the back picture. Seth Green. Look at him. Look how young. You can Amy, even recognize him. Amy Dolenz was hot for a while. That's yeah, Mickey Dolan's daughter. I know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. She was in a few. She was in a few movies. Anyway, Wade, uh, we have to talk about this uh, one movie or we'll die because it's awesome. Now, Al, now Wade and I are big fans of Alamo Draft House. We love Alamo Draft House. Woo! Oh yes, we do. Love what they're about. And uh, they also have a DVD distribution arm called uh, well, it's AlamoFilms.com, I guess. And um, they have uh, graced us with probably the greatest film ever made. Which would be what? Miami Connection. <laughs> now, this is one of the. This is actually one of the great cult films that never got released. I I, I don't know where Alamo Drafthouse found this thing, but uh, they screened it at one of their theaters. It was a big hit, and now they're they have it out on uh, Blu-ray. And this thing is absolutely hilarious. I mean, Wade, I know what you're thinking. You want to see a movie where motorcycle ninjas fight a martial arts rock band for control of Florida's drug trade. That's what you're thinking. I, I, if you say so. Oh, that's what you're thinking. Okay. It's awesome. This thing is the greatest movie ever made. This thing is so wonderfully bad. I mean, we're talking like the dialogue is terrible. The acting is terrible. The, there's, there's, there, there are musical numbers that are pretty terrible. The makeup's over the top. I mean, the action sequences. like People get punched in like the mouth for Sweet. some reason. I don't know why that happens. This thing is so bad, but it is so funny. You have got to see Miami Connection. It is awesomely awesomely hilarious and draft house films has they have dug this thing out from the grave where it's been living since 1987 and they have released it with all sorts of cool special features so good well mark you know what else draft house films has done for us uh what they've given us trailer war 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 yeah. uh this is another really cool release this month from uh, draft house films what they've now here's the thing Trailers, for those of you that don't know this, if they're old trailers, I'm not sure if new trailers go under this, but old trailers um, are in the public domain. And that's one reason we were able to do Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies, as inexpensively as Ray and I did it, because uh, a lot of the footage in there we didn't have to license. We just had to find actually a source trailer, and the trailers were in the public domain, so we were good. Well, that's kind of what Drafthouse has done with this. Obviously, uh, Tim League, who runs the Alamo Drafthouse and Drafthouse Films, in the vaults of the original Alamo Drafthouse, I'm sure they had tons and tons of trailers uh, from old exploitation films or whatever, and they have literally uh, put all of those onto one disc. And uh, some of these I've never seen before, and they are hysterical. They are really priceless. Uh, you, you'll just laugh for hours and hours and hours, and kind of like the uh, educational films we mentioned earlier, this is great stuff for a party. It really is. Just throw this on during a party. People are sitting around. They'll just look at one, pay attention to it for 30 seconds, and laugh themselves delirious. Really, really good to have. This is a great Blu-ray. Um, and, the, and the nice thing about a lot of this on Blu-ray is that the trailers are in terrible condition, and they haven't really cleaned them up any. So they come with all of the grindhouse grit and dirt and scratches. That, and that's uh, how we want it. And that's how you want it. You want it to be that way. It's really a lot, a lot of fun. I don't understand. You know, Alamo Drafthouse, they're, they're, they're opening theaters, like actual yeah, they're gonna brick open, and mortar, they're, flesh and blood theaters. They're, 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 well, they're, it's, a, it's a franchise arrangement. Some of them will be associated with Alamo Drafthouse proper, but a lot of them are just franchising the name. But it obviously, like any franchise, any food franchise, it goes with the, there are certain expectations that come with it. So, you know, you, if you want the brand, you have to kind of sign on for a bunch of other stuff. But the weird thing is that one of these they're doing in Yonkers. Which is like young. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're, they're, they've been looking for uh, about a year and a half now for uh, a place to open up a big multiplex to to go toe to toe with the landmark here. Oh, in, in, LA. in L.A. Yeah, oh, they totally should. I mean, there yeah. there was rumors that 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 the uh, that the theater on uh, Sunset and Crescent Heights was going to be an Alamo Draft House. I know that's uh, that's right. Yeah. But I don't know why they would want to open up something in Yonkers. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know. Yonkers is like. Yonkers. I know. There's a you know subways don't go to Yonkers. You have to I get know. on the Metro North to get to Yonkers. Exactly. 
Uh, we're going to talk about a few doc- documentaries to wrap up the show. Some of the really, really good stuff that uh, came out this year. One of them, uh, which was nominated for an Oscar. The other one that should have been nominated for an Oscar. I'm going to talk about the latter first. The Imposter. Great movie. Is an unbelievable documentary. It's, Great. It, should, it not only should have been nominated for an Academy Award, it probably should win. Um, this is such an unusual but amazing film because it's about the ultimate, um, the, the ultimate con job. It's uh, it's about a guy, a French guy, who b- convinced this Texas family that he was their long lost kidnapped son, and he doesn't look anything like him. He doesn't sound anything like him. He's a French guy with an accent. He, it just makes no sense at all. The whole thing is preposterous, and they tell you this from the beginning of the film. You're in on it. You know that this is a total fraud, and the reason the movie works is because it plays against a different set of expectations, not, oh, my gosh, are they going to find out? You know they all find out. The question is, how could you all have been so stupid? I mean, Why movie, did nobody figure this out? The movie opens with an interview with the guy. Yeah, he's interviewed all through the film. So and, you know, though there's no mystery as to whether or not he gets caught. No. You already know he gets caught. He's you interviewed know he in the caught. movie. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're basically along for the ride because you are incredulous at how anyone could allow themselves to be so duped. And then it takes this unbelievably wicked turn at the end, which is just, you just sit there and you just go, damn, this was a ride. This is, this is, a, this is a great movie. It is a great movie. This yep. is a great movie. It is, it is absolutely Very highly recommended. I am stunned that this was not nominated for an Oscar, but, you know, it's, um, it doesn't have a kind of a political machination to it. So it, It's uh, not about Israelis and Palestinians? Yeah, or the civil rights movement or the Holocaust, and that already puts it at a disadvantage as far as the documentary committee is concerned, and that's unfortunate. It was a big hit at festivals, big hit at the box office, did re- extremely well, and uh, you don't miss it. Really good. I could not agree less. No, it's a great film. Also, a great film is another terrific documentary from last year. Is uh, this one did get nominated for an Oscar? This one did get nominated. Called "Searching for Sugar Man." "Searching for Sugar Man" is a story of a uh, of this um, this singer from the seventies named Rodriguez. He came out with one album, which is a great album, and then he disappeared. Now, rumor had it that he died, and over the years, between his death and today, it turns out that the guy became a hero in South Africa during the end of the apartheid movement. Somehow, the South, Afri- South African fans really started to take to his music, and they started to equate his music with the end of apartheid, and it became, he became a phenomenon there, even though he had died. Um, and so this record producer there, this record collector, he tries to find... Sugar Man, even though he had died, and it was really kind of about outstanding. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's great. It's great stuff. Yeah. By the way, this guy Rodriguez, he only came out with the one album, but uh, his music is terrific. And actually, yeah. there's a there's a soundtrack now you can get. Uh, searching for Sugar Man motion picture soundtrack with all the music from this guy Rodriguez. Anyway, so it's all about uh, uh, Rodriguez's story, where he came from in Detroit. The one album he came out with that everybody thought this guy will be the next Bob Dylan. Turns out it didn't happen. Uh, he dies. He becomes a huge star in South Africa where he becomes like a symbol of the entire anti-apartheid movement. And it just becomes this whole gigantic worldwide phenomenon thing. And it's just a great, great documentary. It's great. Searching for Sugar Man did get nominated for an Oscar. It deserves to get nominated for an Oscar. It's a great achievement, much like The Imposter. Uh, it's great. It's moving stuff. And then uh, last two here is Manufactured Landscapes, uh, which is all about Edward Bertinsky, who is this fascinating installation artist who just turns junk and uh, refuse and strange peculiar locations and stuff and and somehow creates art installations out of it it's it's just such an unusual fascinating look at, a, at his process and the way he thinks and why it's art uh, it's a terrific blu-ray really nicely shot uh, from zeitgeist uh, also includes a, a discussion with uh, Bertinsky and the film's director Jennifer Beckwall and uh, an interview with the cinematographer, which is a big deal on this doc, because this is one of those docs where the cinematographer is as much part of the, the story as anybody else. I mean, he does an amazing job. Really, really nicely done. Uh, highly, highly recommended on that case. And then very lastly is the forthcoming PBS uh, documentary, The Abolitionists, part of the American Experience series. And um, 
this is really, really good. This is one of the better uh, recent American experiences that I've, that I've seen directed by Rob Rapley, uh, which gets into uh, the history of all of those who were key to the abolitionist movement uh, preceding the Civil War. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Frederick Douglass, a lot of them we know. Some of them are, are less well-known. William Lloyd Garrison, uh, Angelina Grimkay. And, uh, you know, this obviously is meant to take to capitalize on the awareness of slavery now, both with Lincoln and with Django. A lot of you know a lot of de- debate going on too, especially with those Django slave dolls. You know that, that which they had to pull from the market. Um, so people are talking about slavery again, and it's actually uh, a good time for slavery this. Slavery's hot again. It's like it is. <laughs> so uh, it's a good time to come out with this. It's also right at the very very beginning of Black History Month. So uh, really super super timing for this, and really really well done, and uh, an excellent effort by American Experience that doesn't feel like they're just trying to sort of pawn off uh, a documentary to, to ride the coattails of other movies. This feels like, you know what, the time was right, let's go and revisit this story, and they do a really, really good job of it. Very, very professional. And with that, Mark, we are done. We're done? We're done. So send us your Vox boxes, your listener mail, and your suggestions for new show intros to gods at digigods.com. See you next week. Digigods.